Welcome to the Making Next School Cool podcast, the link between research, practice, and theory for those interested in the activities youth are involved with during non-school hours. The Making Next School Cool podcast is produced by Case for Kids, a division of Harris County Department of Education, and I'm your host, Mike Wilson. There are many opinions regarding what makes an effective educator and best practices regarding instructing at-risk and under-resourced students. According to Dr. Rich Milner, a professor at Vanderbilt University, an educator's ability to build cultural competence is an important skill to have, especially in urban and highly diverse settings. Yet, the way they acquire these skills are often unclear. Dr. Milner suggests that those working with youth of color must be aware of the Opportunity Gap Framework. Using this framework could address some of the problematic mindsets that teachers commonly hold and provide them with a paradigm shift to develop instructional strategies that are responsive to students' varying needs and the differences that students bring into the classroom. To discuss his work in this area is my guest, Dr. Rich Milner. Dr. Rich Milner is Cornelius Vanderbilt Chair of Education in the Department of Teaching and Learning at Peabody College of Education and Human Development. He has secondary appointments in Peabody's Department of Leadership, Policy, and Organizations and the Department of Sociology in Vanderbilt's College of Arts and Science. Dr. Milner is President of the American Educational Research Association. He is also an elected member of the National Academy of Education and has spent hundreds of hours observing teachers' practices and interviewing educators and students in urban schools about micro-level policies that shape students' opportunities to learn. So it's my pleasure to have Dr. Rich Milner as my guest today on the Making Up School Cool podcast. Dr. Milner, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. Really uh, excited and appreciate the fact that you were able to squeeze in some time with me to, to discuss this this very interesting and uh, relevant topic. Oh well, I'm honored to do it. Uh, we need to uh, we have to work together uh, to support you know young people in this work. Well, my first question is: You've worked to bring together leading scholars of urban education. How would you describe urban education? What do we know regarding the subject and what other information do we need to know regarding this topic? Well, you know, uh, so much brilliance and excellence actually emerged, merges in urban spaces. And I think uh, what we found in the research literature is that uh, too often, in fact, uh, urban communities are viewed as uh, less than or not uh, as uh, rich in resources and capital. Uh, you know, we often view or conceptualize urban education uh, from deficit perspectives. And what I've really tried to do in my work is to really uh, disrupt this notion that urban spaces are not, uh, you know, those that are rich in capital or those that are don't have, you know, uh, brilliance, uh, among you know those in those spaces and so uh, i think that any of us in this work uh, committed to supporting teachers supporting families and communities and especially supporting young people have to you know start the work of thinking about urban education and urban context uh, as those that uh, have many many strengths from which we should build and learn now, what are your recommendations concerning how educators should support students of color 
especially those who live below the poverty line and those whose first language is not English? Well, I would say that we have to understand that, uh, again, our students come into uh, educational spaces with so many resources, uh, so many assets from which we should be able to to draw uh, and understand. And so uh, if if our view of young people is that they are somehow deficient or they somehow don't have what they need, but we can't assume that these students then should have the exact same expectations uh, as students who have a tutor at home or uh, you know have a nanny working with them or have unlimited resources, right? I think we have to really be mindful of the, the variation in which uh, young people are experiencing life outside of education. And, that, and then that means our curriculum practices, that means, you know, the way we teach, that is through instruction or pedagogy, the, the way we assess uh, how we build relationships, all have to be done from an equitable framework where we're not focusing only or we're not framing our work uh, in a way where we do the exact same across different contexts, but we in fact take into consideration the multi-layered aspects of their lives uh, in the work we do. You know, that's a great segue to my next question. Um, uh, as I was doing some background research on some of the work that you've done, uh, I actually learned a few new terms. Um, one of them was you discussed the opportunity gap framework. And this could be a tool to describe the ways in which black students continue to experience individual, structural, and systematic inequalities in the classroom and in schools across the United States compared to uh, other students. Can you give us a definition in your own words with opportunity gap and how it is present in environments in which kids of color are being taught different types of things? Yeah, I think that's a really important question, uh, Mike. What I found is that, uh, and I'm really drawing here from the, the brilliance and the excellent work of Gloria Lassen Billings. And what Lassen Billings, uh, who is a leader in this work and someone whom I have admired and who has supported me and, you know, really amplified and pushed forward the work, you know, related to, you know, supporting young people often minoritized and marginalized, uh, is that our language really, really matters. It's not inconsequential. In fact, language is uh, central and germane to how we formulate, make sense of, build, and design policies and practices, right? And so what Lassen Billings has charged us in education to do is to reframe how we talk about what's happening in education and to push us away from engaging this idea of achievement gap. And what Lassen Billings says is that what we should be doing is uh, instead centralizing what she calls an education debt. Uh, and there are you know, a few dimensions that she goes through that sort of frame what education debt means. In other words, she, she makes it clear that uh, educational systems actually owe communities of color. They owe communities that are minoritized uh, so much, you know. Uh, and, uh, and so for me, I have sort of framed this idea of opportunity gap as a uh, as a tool as an analytic tool to kind of make sense of what i have come to understand in my 23 years of, of doing research right what i found is that 
students succeed when mechanisms are in place for them to succeed. And so this idea that rather than focusing and placing all the onus on young people, uh, we in education have to take, that is teachers, school leaders, school counselors, we all have to take some responsibility in uh, making sure and ensuring that young people have a fighting chance of, of succeeding. And so when we focus on achievement, all the onus or most of the onus is placed on students. You know, what are the students' test scores? How do students pair? How do they fare in comparison to other students, right? Uh, but Opportunity Gap says, let's look at what structures are in place, what policies are in place, what systems are in place to ensure that inputs are where they need to be so that we get the kind of outputs and outcomes that any of us will hope for for all of our children. Now, you've done some collaboration with other scholars such as Dr. Connor, Dr. Adam Alvarez, and R. Murray to develop the Teachers Race Talk Survey, which is one of the first survey instruments focused on how teachers reportedly uh, describe their perspective of race and discourse. Can you summarize the outcomes of this valuable research? Uh, when Lori Delaley O'Connor, Ira Murray, Jawanza Rand, and Adam Alvarez, and other team members and I developed this race talk survey, we were really interested in trying to capture the, the efficacy, the self-efficacy, the confidence, and the, the beliefs which have to do with cognition uh, and the feelings which has to do with, with the affect of teachers in discussing and engaging uh, what could be considered uh, tough and controversial issues in the classroom, such as such as race, right? Uh, especially in this moment where uh, teachers are under enormous pressure to engage uh, or to not engage what we know to be important issues, teaching history and teaching the truth. And so we really wanted to capture the level of support or not teachers felt in using their professional judgment to engage young people in the classroom. And so the tool really, the Teachers Race Talk tool survey really is one that any is open to any to anyone who is interested in uh, what teachers say about both their, their competence, that is what they know about engaging race, their support, that is how they feel, the administration, families, parents, and so forth, support them in engaging and trust them in engaging uh, conversations like race and racism so that we can kind of, we could really use the data and the research to report back about how teachers are doing uh, in this area. We found that, you know, some doctoral students have used the Race Talk survey in their work. Others have adapted and adopted the survey, you know, in their work to kind of capture what's going on as well. But in order for us to know more, you know, we have to have tools to be able to uh, to capture uh, what's necessary uh, to build knowledge. And that's what we attempted to do, my, my colleagues and I, uh, in this Race Talk survey. You know, it's interesting because, you know, race is one of those things that sometimes some people feel uncomfortable about it and they really don't want to discuss it. And then, you know, it's, it's been a 
uh, a habit to just say I love all my kids the same, I treat all my kids the same, uh, which really and truly in practice, that's not the best way to, uh, to do it. So, you know, I applaud you for doing this type of research. And I think even when a person sits down and analyzes what they currently think and then they see it, then, you know, that's where you start to make change and that's when you can actually grow. Uh, you described and theorized three types of urban education. Uh, urban characteristic, urban emergent, and urban intensive. Uh, can you explain the three and how they are similar and how they differ? Uh, yeah, so it was just, you know, in, in thinking about um, how we as researchers and practitioners often talk about urban education, I found that we, uh, each of us has a different way of, of sort of conceptualizing and making sense of and naming what it is we are experiencing. And so when I, as a researcher and as an, an editor, I really want us to have deeper clarity related to what people mean when they use the term urban. Um, I've spent my career trying to learn more about urban education and to contribute to that that discourse. And so, you know, I was in a, in a very rural community, just to give you a quick story, many years ago or several years ago and the superintendent who was driving me around to kind of give me a lay of the land the the community looked to me to be a very very rural community i mean you know it didn't feel urban at all <laughs> to me in my conception of what urban education was and is but he kept saying you know this is our you know our urban kids live over here our urban you know, this is an example of, of what's happening in our urban community. And it was in that moment, and I just, it just became very clear to me that the way people talk about urban education really is distinct. And they use urban education as a marker for people, when in fact, I don't think urban should be used as a marker for people as much as it should be used as a, a way to talk about um, uh, places, right? So urban characteristic really is what are those mid-sized cities uh, that, you know, we might learn something from and about, which I would sort of characterize as urban emergent, uh, as, uh, but, you know, the sort of real urban or the, I don't want to say real, but the urban spaces that I think deserve a lot of our attention when, it, when we think about and characterize urban environments are those urban intensive places, you know, those places like, you know, Houston, Texas, and, uh, you know, even, you know, Dallas, Texas, and, uh, you know, New York City and Los Angeles and, you know, these huge, these really, really big cities with deep and complex, uh, with large numbers of students uh, in them. Uh, and that is what I would characterize as urban intensive. You know, it's interesting. I'll tell you a quick story. Um, I think sometimes people will use the word urban to actually describe a group of people versus the, the community itself. And I live in a suburb right outside of Houston, but I have a lot of friends and family that live within Houston. And one time we was visiting my mother-in-law and there was some construction on the freeway. So we had to make a slight detour. And we ended up passing this public housing unit. And my daughter at the time was probably about maybe seven or eight. And she started screaming, look the gecko, look the gecko. And I was like, what are you talking about? Right there, that's the gecko. She was trying to say the ghetto, which I didn't know she even knew anything about it. You know, uh, and I was thinking, okay, we got to get you out a little bit more. But I think, unfortunately, for people who don't necessarily 
uh, cross paths with people from a lot of different environments, you come up with the, these stereotypes. And now that we're in such a commuter society and families uh, move a lot, uh, you do interact with people from different environments. And I think having awareness and knowledge and sensitivity to those different environments definitely makes everybody's learning environment better and make it a lot easier to, to work with youth. There's a lot of stuff I want to talk to you about, so I'll probably schedule a few more follow-up visits if, that okay, if that's okay with you. Uh, but before we go, do you have any final comments? I um honored to, to be with you and I look forward to uh you know all of the great work that uh our educators can and should do. Uh I think in this moment we need to wrap our arms around, you know, teachers especially who and school leaders, principals and so forth who are engaging in this arduous work of supporting uh the needs of young people, you know, teachers and principals and school counselors and psychologists and psychiatrists they go above and beyond the call of duty to support their students every single day and i just want to salute them for all they you know they do to support you know the educational experiences uh, of students in schools everywhere so yeah. thank you for having me uh, my pleasure and like i said i definitely want to follow up with you um i have a quick story i found out this weekend i don't know if you've heard about the situation that occurred uh in barbers hill isd regarding uh, students' hair. He had locks, and which the administration said was a violation of their dress code. And so they were going to suspend the student. And make a long story short, the family ended up having to move to a different uh, district. And I recently found out that this family's uh, had a, a, a kid that was in the uh, middle school. The first kid was in high school, and the same situation is occurring. And there was an administrator who was a friend of mine, actually. I hadn't talked to him in a while, but he was like, he didn't see the kid in violation of uh, any of the dress codes. And so he and the um, administration kind of went back and forth. Make a long story short, uh, that administrator uh, resigned. And I think, you know, that's some um, evident of the work that you are doing, providing theory, research, actual study on these particular topics, when especially since we have such a diverse uh, community that are walking through our schools, after school programs, and even in our community. So I definitely want to applaud you for the work you're doing. Oh, well, I appreciate that. And I would strongly encourage people who are grappling with, uh, you know, hair and the politics of hair to take a look at the Crown Act. Right. Uh, you know, young people should not be discriminated against, you know, based on their, you know, their hair and, and what they choose, how they choose to to wear their hair um, as well, so. Well, again, I want to uh, thank you for being my guest today. Uh, I definitely want to follow up because this is definitely some t uh, topic and uh, the fact that you're doing research on this subject uh, definitely strengthens uh, adults that are working with young people. So uh, again, applaud you for your work and I appreciate you being my guest today. Uh, thank you so much. I look forward to hearing and please make sure you send me a link because I really want to be able to share it and, and hear how this all comes together. Thank you again. Thank you, Dr. Milner, for being my guest today and for conducting the valuable research that should assist educators, OST professionals, and adults better understand the needs of youth living in urban settings. I also want to thank you, the listeners, for joining me today and invite you to join me for future episodes as we continue to explore issues relevant to the out-of-school time field.